Incoming transmission from an unknown source. It seems to be urgent. Patching them through. They're calling themselves the Holonet Marauders. Hey everybody, welcome back to the Holonet Marauders podcast. I'm AJ, and I'm joined here by Mythological Matt today. Myth- wow. Is that is that my name? Do I have to change my name now? Yeah, you might you might have to on that thing. It always says Marauder Matt, but today it might say Mythological Matt. So, because I said that, this is a big episode for Matt, and it's gonna be a cool episode for for our channel. Um, but we're gonna be talking about myth, uh, mythology and themes in Star Wars. Which, if you listen to our podcast regularly, you'll know that's like Matt's bread and butter. It's his favorite thing. Um, for me and for Jamie, it's kind of like a secondary thing. Like, it's not in the forefront of our mind when we're enjoying Star Wars. It's a very cool thing that when we step, when I step back, at least I can see it. And since knowing Matt better, the last like handful of years, we've become good friends. Like, he points these things out to us on the podcast and just in general as friends. I'm like, oh, it's really cool to see it from that point of view. We do roll our eyes at him a lot, but it's all in good fun. Whenever I roll my eyes at anyone or give anyone any sort of uh, sass or anything, it's always, I mean, I'm never, as Matt always says, he never says anything serious. Like, I never really do either, like, especially when it comes to Star Wars. Yeah, yeah we may disagree on things, but like, yeah, I, I say that to people all the time. Don't take yourself too seriously. Um, but yeah, with that being said, mythology and, and, the, and all the general themes in Star Wars is what we're going to talk about today. And uh, you're going to hear a lot of Matt because this is his bread and butter. I don't want to think of it as like I'm interviewing him, but it's kind of going to be that like I'm going to be spinning ideas off him and he's just going to be going. But uh, Matt, how happy are you that we're doing this episode? I'm very happy. I love doing this kind of stuff. I I could talk about that. We could do like 10 episodes on this stuff and it would just be me just ranting like a stream of consciousness just over and over again. Watch really me be know. like silent and speechless this whole episode. Just be like, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that would be fantastic. That would be a great yeah, episode. I'd be over here like that. somehow I turn into the um, mythological AJ over here. But, there you go. Yeah, you and he did change, change his name. name. If you're a I listener, uh, we have our names on the thing. And uh, mine says AJ and his says mythological Matt now. So Yours says AJ. Wow. Yeah. It used to say. It used to be. At it home used and at Marauder your, for some yeah, reason. Yeah, used to be our twitter or our handle i'll just say our handle our handle Uh, (laughs) but so i do have a question before we get into all this stuff um like a general question because for me like people might might be wondering like oh aj if you don't if someone out there is like i love the mythological stuff in star wars and all those kind of things and i really look for themes in star wars like that's what i like like they'd be like aj why what do you like and i mean I don't I don't want to say I take it at surface level, but like I kind of do like I enjoy it within its own universe or galaxy, whatever you want to call it. And I just I'm just there for the stories like maybe I'm a maybe I'm a pea brain or something. And I just like it like that. But that's not um, how that works. Uh, a good I would comparison, say the majority digest Star Wars like you do. Probably. But yeah, most definitely. But the way I enjoyed it as a kid is kind of the same way I do enjoy it now. I do obviously as a kid, maybe I didn't like dialogue and that kind of stuff. But like now I really like that stuff. Like would I have liked Andor as a kid? Um, probably still. I was 
That's kind really? of a weird kid. Yeah, I don't I know. Have, like, I don't think I would have liked Andor as a kid. I, I mean, I, I like. I think. It I like things like James boring. Bond as a kid, but I like the action. But I yeah, yeah. I like James Bond too as a kid. But yeah, it was because of the action. But Andor has action, but not a lot of it. Also, I mean, there's a lot of dryness in there. Good dryness. There's a lot of dryness, and there are a lot. There's a lot of social commentary that I, as a kid, would never have picked up on. Well, that's the thing you're getting to, though. Like that's that's enjoying the outside influence of it. Which True. is like, and that's, which, that's that's what we're getting to today. I will today. say like, this. I will say this. It absolutely baffles me that you don't see Andor for the like the okay, social so Andor, political commentary that that the that Andor produced was like the first thing I saw and the thing that made me love it so much. The Andor, I didn't expect us to immediately be talking about Andor. That's what the beauty of this is. Like, this isn't really scripted. We just got it's into just this a stream of consciousness discussion. Yeah, Andor. Um, it is a lot more obvious in Andor, but like, I will say when we do podcast episodes, the reviews of each episode, me, you, Jack and Jamie did them, you know, you guys did bring up a lot of things where I'm like, oh, I didn't really think of it that way, which is, is good. I like, I like to hear, I like to learn things from each other. That's a cool thing of doing this, well, yeah. but I mean, they're that show. It's a little more blatant and in your face, but, um, but anyways, my question, I'm going all the way around here. Uh, to you is like when did you really start to shift gears because i imagine you didn't always love look at all this outside influence on star wars and all the, the mythological stuff and the themes like, when did you really you know, shift gears into loving that i will say actually i have always when i was four years old in the theater watching the phantom menace uh i was taking notes i had a little notepad and i was writing down like oh yeah you the Maul hero's journey with you represents the pathos uh and yeah no um well, I started really getting into film in high school, like just film in general. And since Star Wars was like the films that I watched as a kid the most, just constantly on repeat, I, I sort of just kind of gravitated towards watching Star Wars uh, with that like film lens in mind when I started developing like an actual interest in, in writing in films uh, for like messaging and themes and stuff like that, instead of just like, the surface level like action and fun that I used to enjoy when I was a kid. But like, you know, funny enough, um, the angry video game nerd <laughs> who yeah. I actually got to meet this year, which this was year, very yeah. exciting. Um, he made a video, uh, two videos on Star Wars. And I think I was a freshman in high school or I was in eighth grade when they came out. Uh, and that was like my height, the height of my angry video game nerd or James Rolfe. That's his name, his, that fandom. I was super into him at the time. And he released these two, these two videos on Star Wars, and he started talking about the parallels. Now, when I was a kid, my dad, every time I would talk to my dad, he would always say the same thing to me. He'd say, oh, you know, because I, I always used to think Star Wars and Star Trek were like rivalry franchises that like hated each other. And like they were the same thing. Uh, so you could only like one or the other. You couldn't like both. And I always used to rag on my dad because he liked both. And he always used to say, well, Star Trek is sci-fi, but Star Wars is just a space Western. And I always used to get pissed at him when I was a kid because I <laughs> could not understand that concept. And I used to be like, yeah, that's nonsense. It's there's no there's no cowboys. There's no there's no funny hats and horses. And they're not it doesn't <laughs> take place in the West. So I have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Shut up. You know, and, he, and one day he actually did sit me down and he played like the theme from the Magnificent Seven. And then he played Star Wars. And that was, I think that was like seventh or eighth grade. And that was when I, it, it like clicked. I was like, holy crap, this sounds, this, this, this music is Western music. 
but like repackaged to be like mm. more triumphant and like almost like warlike uh, or like a World War II movie would have like these like really triumphant, bombastic scores mixed with a Western. And when I watched the James Rolfe videos, he did the same thing. He, he showed all these clips from different Western movies and then put them in the context of Star Wars. And that and it like hit me right then. It was like, oh, my God, you know, this this is a Western. And then it's a World War Two movie. And oh, my God, it's a it's a fantasy. You know, they yeah. holy crap. You know, it's a it, it's it's Merlin. And and there's a farm boy and he finds a sword and he goes on a, a quest to save a princess from a fortress. And it's and it's samurai movies. Holy crap. And then I sat down and I watched all the, you know, Hidden Fortress and, and Seven Samurai and, and Seven Samurai. Uh, connects to the Magnificent Seven and Westerns. And Westerns were like cannibalizing uh, samurai movies and samurai movies were cannibalizing Western movies at the same time. If you watch like uh, Django, like the original Django movies from the 1960s, not Django Unchained, that kind of riffs off of those, but like the original Django movie from like 1960, that movie is a remake of The Seven Samurai. Seven Samurai? Pretty sure it's The Seven Samurai. It's a remake of a samurai movie. Which is funny uh-huh. because this, the, the movie that it was remaking was riffing off of like Westerns from the 30s and 40s. So it was like mm. a cycle. The Western movies would influence the Samurai movies, which would influence the next generation of Spaghetti Westerns, which then influenced Star Wars. So all of a sudden you had, you know, warrior monks that act like Samurai, uh, who George Lucas describes as marshals from the Old West roaming the galaxy with their you know sabers right you don't call they didn't have guns they have sabers so they're knights you know they're jedi knights that that have like that practice in like temples they practice their religion in temples so it's like buddhism and then you jump into like the philosophical angles of like the force and like how does that connect to our real life religions and like buddhism the 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 whole like non-attachment part of the Jedi is directly based on non-attachment principles of Buddhism and Taoism. If you know anything about Taoism, Taoism or the Tao is literally the way. And it's basically on like the very surface level guys, because I am not a Taoist. I want to put that out right now. I'm just going to say from like the most surface level reading of the religion, you could get much deeper, but the Tao just means the way. And the way is just like a way of nature of how things are, how things just must be and if and to practice in the most pure sense you have to follow kind of just the way and that's the same thing as like well it's not the same thing but the will of the force definitely riffs off that idea taoism is definitely a huge driver in like what the force actually is and if we look at stoicism which was like an ancient greek philosophical practice like way back in the day uh, stoicism, stoicism is the same kind of way. It was like a rationalization uh, or rational thinking where people were encouraged to see when you think of Stoics, you think of somebody who is just like not like emotional at all, like no emotion, just plain like Stoic, right? That's it's kind of that term has kind of become that. But it really just mean it, it really just meant looking at things in a rational manner. Uh, removing a lot of emotion from it, but not all of it, because you can't remove all of it. And a rationalist would know that you cannot remove all emotion from a situation. And so Stoicism Mm. believed in looking at things um, following some kind of natural order that through rationalism, you could 
kind of see. I, I, I'm not doing the greatest job of explaining it, but the, the, basic, I, the basic principle was you had to remove as much uh, subjectivity as possible to look at the most objective truth of how things function. And it was, it was very much in, in, a, in a similar manner to Taoism in, in terms of like, there is a natural order of things. There is a way things happen. So we must see that through, you know, practicing, containing our emotions, understanding what our emotions do. And that's very Jedi. Yeah. Like, again, you know, and, it, and, and, and again, people often very much mis misunderstand what the Jedi are. I think that's something um, that I, that's a big deal. I think, cause that's a big deal to me. People I talk think about like, that all the time. No, yeah. And I, I agree. Like people do forget what a Jedi is like, Oh, a Jedi, like they should be out there fighting someone. They should be out there. Like, but like the whole idea is they don't want to fight. And like, they don't want to fight They They've been the, the brilliance of the prequels. The brilliance of that is that like the Jedi are kind of trapped. If they sit yeah. out of the war, they, you know, they're letting so much countless suffering be caused by an organization they know is run by the Sith. They know that the CIS is controlled by a Sith Lord and his apprentice Dooku, who we, you know, who has a red lightsaber and is doing nefarious things. You know, <laughs> it's not that hard to, to come to the conclusion that he is a Sith. And, and, and the Jedi do understand that by the beginning of the Clone Wars. So you, you understand that the Jedi know that the Sith are running the CIS. They're running the opposition to the Republic. So you have to, you have to understand that, yes, the Jedi have to fight that. The Sith yeah. are the unnatural twisting of the Force. The Force is brought out of balance by an overabundance of Sith influence on the galaxy. And we could get into what balance of the Force really means all day, because there are a lot of different interpretations, because George Lucas never really specified, except for saying that, more or less, balance in the Force is the absence of the Sith. Uh, or, more... More accurately, George said that Anakin killing Palpatine and then dying, uh, a Jedi, cut the line of the Sith off and balanced the Force. And a lot of people think that means that no Sith equals balance in the Force. And I think it's a little, it's a little it's more tricky. nuanced than that. Yeah. My personal interpretation is a a lack of influence of the the dark side on the galaxy. So. Uh, as minimal suffering as possible. Um, and usually the Sith bring about that kind of suffering that unbalances the force. Uh, but I think it has more to do with peace. So no war, right? No galactic war. And which a, is a, not very often or time of no war in Star Wars. Star Wars isn't uh, too often true. of a thing, but yeah. Too often of a thing, unless you lived before 32 at BBY. Yeah. <laughs> then it was a thousand years of no war. Um, and I, the Nile, you can you can kind of talk about the Nile or the path of the open hand, because they kind of bring about violence and chaos. And I do think balancing is like a scale. It's not a simple binary balanced or unbalanced. I think there is like a tipping point where an overabundance of suffering and violence and war can tip the scales. And by the time Palpatine rolls around, um, <laughs> the scales are like, whoa, like way over here. And then the Clone Wars is kind of like the tipping point where things just collapse. Right. I take, there's a quote.
from a, an interview that George Lucas did in 1999 for a magazine. I think it was Time Magazine. It's a good year. Um, yeah, 1999. And he talks specifically about how Anakin's fall unbalances the Force. Uh, and, and first of all, I mean, that, that alone is like really, that's a big deal to me. Because I love that idea that his fall unbalances the Force and his rise balances the Force again. But that also shows that the presence of Sith, at least to George Lucas, is not inherent to unbalancing the Force. Uh, and it shows that for the thousand years before 32 BBY, the Force was in balance, even though the Sith were kind of in the shadows and preparing to unbalance it. Um, so, you know, I think that's a big deal to me, because... That means that, at least to George, there is some other level to balancing the Force than just simply Sith or no Sith. Yeah. And I know that this was like a weird tangent I just went on uh, that has... No, I, I don't even I remember how good. I came up with it. But it all started balancing with, the galaxy, when did you start? When did you start liking myth, I know, mytho uh, mythology in Star Wars? But it's good. Keep going. But the way I look at it, balance the galaxy kind of represents an organism in and of itself because yeah. the Force is life itself. And the force binds the galaxy together, binds every living thing together. And there is an energy, a force that exists that the galaxy can either be at peace with or not. And the Sith or the dark side in overabundance is a bad thing. Um, the dark side exists naturally. It has to. You know, when, when Luke is talking to Rey in The Last Jedi, we see, you know, there's there things like death and decay are naturally dark. There's a natural dark side cave on Dagobah. There's a natural dark side cave underneath Octo. Um, you know, death and suffering are inherent. You can never eliminate them completely, but you can minimize them. And it's the same way it's like in, in our bodies. You know, we have an immune system that fights an overabundance of bad things. Uh, and the same way within ourselves, an overabundance of you know, crassness and anger and jealousy and rage can unbalance us. It's the same way with the galaxy. You know, they're one in the same. So when Anakin finally finds peace and balances himself, the galaxy finally finds peace and balances itself. And when Ben Solo falls to the dark side, the galaxy, you know, falls to the dark All side. Comes because back. now yeah. we, we, have a, we have an abundance of dark side influence again, you know. I, I don't know if I'm doing the best job of explaining. I think, it, I think you are, but from but I here, I, I think, yeah. you know, we, it's good. We brought up the prequels a lot and, you know, we tapped into the sequels a bit there. We can get back to it in a, in a few, but I think from here we can go into kind of like the meat and potatoes, if you will, of, um, of myth, uh, mythology's influence on star Wars. And that's the hero's journey by Joseph Campbell, which, oh, yeah. you know, that, yeah, that's like, Hero I don't want to say it's like the Bible faces. of, yeah. It is. Um, it, it was, it was George Lucas's Bible. Yeah, for sure. which is I all mean, that matters when no it comes question. to Star Wars, so. When uh, writing the original trilogy, George, at some point, read Hero with a Thousand Faces, the Hero with a Thousand Faces, which is the, the book that George, that Joseph Campbell introduces the concept of the hero's journey in. Um, he read that, he sat down. And he wrote, in Joseph Campbell's own words, the greatest kind of amalgamation, amalgamation of the hero's journey in Luke Skywalker's arc in the original trilogy. 
Luke Skywalker's arc in the original trilogy is the perfect kind of uh, like realization of the hero's journey post-hero's journey. Because obviously the hero's journey specifically is about a series of patterns that we see in, in a lot of myths. It's called the monomyth. Um, and it's basically this idea that every mythology, every mythological story, every mythology kind of has the same kind of arc, the same patterns. Our heroes face very similar trials and do very similar things um, from start to finish. And it's a cycle, you know, our hero starts somewhere and ends in the same place, but now changed. That's kind of the idea behind it. Yeah. And if you look at Luke Skywalker, if you look at uh, Paul Atreides in Dune, if you look at Frodo Baggins in Lord of the Rings, all of in Harry Potter, in the Harry Potter franchise, all of these characters go through a very archetypal, very obvious hero's journey that you can pinpoint from beginning to end and bullet point the things that they do. That, uh, you know, the refusal of the call to adventure, the trials, uh, you know, the magic in the road, basically like the mysterious mentor figure who dies and leaves the hero kind of alone to face the villain, uh, the atonement with the father, which is why Star Wars is the best, because the atonement with the father is such a big deal. The, the father kind of is a representation of adulthood. Most heroes' journeys are specifically about coming of age. And once again, look at the people I mentioned. Luke Skywalker, who's 19 and then turns 23 at the end of Return of the Jedi. Paul Atreides, who is like a teenager. I don't exactly know how old he is, but he's, he's young. Harry Potter, who is 11 at the beginning of his journey. Frodo, who is a right. young guy in his journey. And they all kind of grow up and, and, and cross the threshold, threshold into adulthood by the end of their journey. And again, that's kind of where it is. It's, it, you start in one place, you end in the same place, but changed, you've evolved. Um, and usually that comes with a certain level of like disillusionment with the past, kind of like break from childhood. Um, and I, I, it helps to mention that the hero with the thousand faces, not a lot of people realize this because a lot of people don't read the book, but if you buy the book oh, yeah. like I did and then read it and, and be like, wait a minute, it's a self-help guide. It's not like it's it's an academic source, but it's it's a self-help book. And he like tells you he kind of uses the hero's journey to match your own. Like you're supposed to latch on to the hero's journey and kind of say like, oh, that's me. I'm doing that. Oh, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm crossing the threshold. I'm atoning with the father. I'm going on these trials. And obviously they're not the same thing because I'm not going around slaying orcs. But, you know, you're supposed to equate certain things with certain equate certain things with certain other things in the book um, and kind of go on your own hero's journey. Now, I will say that is an incredibly outdated idea. This book was written in like the <laughs> 50s. Genius. Don't follow it as a self-help guide, please. And even nowadays, people challenge the hero's journey. And I think there is a certain degree of truth with that. Um, Joseph Campbell he kind of just looked at Jesus's arc in the Bible and was like, Oh yeah, I see that and this and that and this and that. <laughs> and he kind of things to kind of make them fit. It's not perfect and it's not a perfect science, but the monomyth does fit pretty well with a lot of different things in the past. A lot of Greek mythology, 
Jason the Argonauts, Oedipus. That's a big one. Oedipus. He mm -hmm. was like obsessed with Oedipus. Um, that's another, you know, atonement with the father. If you know anything about Oedipus, you know that that's, that's kind of where he probably got the, the concept. Hmm. Um, but yeah, there's just, you know, and nowadays people sort of take the monomyth and say, well, I'm going to write my own mythology and follow those steps to kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of like a cheat sheet or like the quick and easy path to making your own mythology as to follow yeah. the hero's journey. Uh, and that, and that, isn't to say it, that's a bad thing. Joseph Campbell has some pretty outdated ideas, I want to say. Um, but, you know, he's he's like an old white dude from the 50s. Of course he has. Some, yeah, like, of course it's going to be outdated. Outdated yeah. things like he they weren't they weren't hitting 100 uh, back then. So recently. Was, yeah. And I, I know you've been working on um, uh, a separate project for the channel eventually you've gotten into the heroine's journey and you were explaining all that to me and that whole deal i think so, this would be a good jumping point into that this is a good jumping point to it because i'll tell you the origins of the book the heroine's journey so joseph campbell writes hero with a thousand faces and releases it in the 50s becomes a big hit becomes a self-help guide for a lot of men probably <laughs> not the best but it happened so there you go and george lucas was probably one of those people um in the 80s, one of his students by the name of Maureen Murdoch approaches Joseph Campbell, sits down and says, well, what about the woman? What about the feminine? Because actually, I, I shouldn't say what about the woman. I should say what about the feminine? Because there are these things in mythology called masculine principles and feminine principles. Feminine principles are more about creation and creativity and artistry. Masculine principles are more about power and justice, very like hard, rigid things while femininity is more like fluid. And again, this all, this all has to do with like psychology and like yeah. all this stuff. It's, it's very complex and I am above our pay grade trying really hard to just like <laughs> explain it on like a stream of consciousness level it's without tough. going on like it's 20 tough. tangents. Anyway, long story short, she sat down she said, the hero's journey is very masculine. Uh, it has a lot of masculine principles, but what about the feminine principles? Uh, because she was a psycho psychologist, just like Joseph Campbell was. And she specifically won for women. So she sat down and talked to a lot of women uh, and noticed patterns in the stories she was hearing and the dreams that she was hearing. The hero's journey and the heroine's journey uh, talk a lot about dreams. And again, reading dreams is like complete poppycock. I don't want to I don't want to <laughs> say like your dreams mean things. They, subconscious is a is a whole other topic, but I won't go into that. <laughs> anyway, she notices these patterns in her student or her uh, clients, clients, patients, patients. She notices these patterns in these patients and she approaches Joseph Campbell with these this list of patterns and other things. And she says, I believe I can kind of figure out like the feminine side of the hero's journey. You know, instead of masculine, it's feminine. And he looked at her and he said, well, no, because the woman is the goal of the man. The woman can't go on a hero's journey because the woman is simply the end goal for the man to reach. Again, we're talking about a white guy from the fifties and we're specifically talking about very rigid gender roles in terms of like the man, when he comes of age, he has to find a woman and get married and all that jazz. You know, the, the, it's how his brain worked. Um, and Maureen Murdoch did not like that at all. And rightfully so because that's like a ridiculous statement yeah right 
you know, that women can't go on their own journeys with their own feminine principles because they're just simply like an object to be won at the end of like a contest. I mean, that's, you know, ridiculous and that's stupid. And again, that's part of the list of things that Joseph Campbell has said uh, that aren't entirely uh, kosher nowadays. Yeah. So she turned around and she said, fine, I'll just write my own book. And she did. She wrote The Heroine's Journey as kind of like a mirror to the hero's journey. And when you read into The Heroine's Journey, it was like mind boggling. And I'm not the first person to think about this and I don't want to pretend I was. Um, but, you know, when you hear other people say like, oh, Ray's, Ray's arc in the sequels is actually the heroine's journey, not the hero's journey. You know, you hear that, but you don't really think about it until you actually sit down and read this friggin' thing. I mean, I read this friggin' book um, and I have it like on my computer right scholar. now. It's like burning a hole in my friggin' hard drive. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's wild. I mean, it, it, and it, and it boggles my mind because I see so many YouTubers and I see so many creatives who who clearly know what they're talking about when it comes to Star Wars and clearly know what they're talking about when it comes to these kind of more academic readings uh, and the hero's journey and the monomyth and stuff like that. They know this stuff intrinsically, like very strongly. Um, and they just don't see Ray's journey as the heroine's journey. I see so many people complain that Ray's arc is either a copy of Luke's arc, but worse. So the hero's journey, uh, but like poorly managed, mismanaged. Or that she doesn't have an arc, that she doesn't grow or change over the course of the movies, and I, I, I obviously I think that can't not be further cannot be further from the truth. Um, yeah. And back in the day in 2018, 2019, when when sequel discussion was at back its in the day. zenith, yeah, right back in the day, it feels like forever ago. <laughs> it does. Um, but back then, talking about Ray's arc, at least for me, was always about she does not grow physically stronger in the same terms as Luke and Anakin do going from, you know, an untrained child to a Jedi master or in Anakin's case, so close to a master. Um, that's not her journey. It's emotional. She goes through a very clear emotional evolution and growth and change. And that's like on page one, the heroine's journey is all <laughs> about emotional growth and it's like it, it, it was such like a light bulb moment when I was able to like connect the statement of like Ray's arc is emotional to holy shit. There's actually a whole thing about that. And it's called the heroine's journey. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I've been having a blast reading it. I've been having a blast kind of writing this uh, video. Hopefully I'm not eating my words and the video actually comes out. So I'm not looking back at this. <laughs> it'll it'll come out eventually. Being like, maybe oh, you're, I, I never maybe you're watching this and it's already out at some time. But yeah. Hopefully. Should be a good video. Should be great. We'll link it in the description. This is a teaser for it. Yeah. But, sure. uh, so when was the when was the heroine's journey published? 1990. Okay. So I said she approached so Joseph Campbell in the 80s. Uh, and he actually, and it's a funny, in an interview, Joseph Campbell actually talked about that specific interaction he had. And he makes like an off color like joke about like, oh, I'm, I'm glad I'm retiring because I'm I'm tired of I'm tired of this new age thinking. I'm like, get the hell out of here, man. Come man. on. I love Joseph Campbell, but come on, dude. You cannot be saying that stupid bullshit. So she yeah, published I mean, in 1990. Yeah. And that kind of and again, it's a self-help book. <laughs> it's it's very much a self-help book. It definitely gets into a lot of weird stuff about like dreams and like other things that I'm like. Okay, that's a little. Where do you hokey. stand on dreams? No, I don't. Dreams are just meaningless. I, I, yeah, 
basically. I mean, they're they're not meaningless per se. They're your brain kind of sorting and filing through information that it received throughout the day or the week or whatever. There's yeah. certain bits that are kind of sitting in your subconscious that don't eat chocolate before bed. Kind of Might get nightmares. Filing away. Is that true? I don't. I don't even know. I don't. I, I think it might be, but I read about it. But, but I don't put any stock into dreams. Um, I don't have like a dream book or anything like that. And I personally don't think any of the dream analyses in this book are particularly uh, good or precious. Which is interesting that you. It's it's funny you bring that up because that makes me think of of Star Wars. Back to Star Wars here. Um, well, there you go. When when Jedi have dreams or visions, you know, like the person that get receives them is like, oh shit, I have to go help this person, but. Yeah, the master is usually like, "Hey, like, don't look too far into that. That might just be right. close to the dreams, truth, but maybe not. You know, like, yeah. be deceived." As Obi Wan says, "Dreams pass in time," and it's true. Yeah, um, you don't. Yeah, you don't want to act on dreams without having the full context of them. Yeah. Now, I, in Star Wars, you know, people always talk about like when Yoda says, "Like, oh, the future is cloudy." It's like that's true, but it's more or less how that dream is reached as opposed to whether or not the dream will actually happen. So I always, I always, it's, it kind of balances. It's kind of like a tightrope of like predestination and like free choice. Uh, Star Wars always kind of balances that ever since the prophecy of the chosen one was kind of introduced. Uh, you know, I like the prophecy of the chosen one. I love, I love that stuff. I think yeah. the prophecy of the chosen one is taken a little too seriously in the fandom. I think a lot of people put an overemphasis on it. Um, but I like, it's biblical, you know, and again, I'm, I'm that kind of guy who like eats up the stupid, you know, uh, patterns and illusion, illusion, illusions, literally, literary illusions and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but you have to ask like the, the prophecy of the chosen one, did Anakin actually have free will or not when doing it, if he was always destined to do it? good question and that i mean and and the whole thing about predestination and free will that's like that's like the question that's like the age-old question that philosophy was invented to kind of figure out so it's not like i'm the, i'm the one sitting here going like "Ooh, do you believe in idea. destiny no so you don't believe in dreams you don't believe in destiny do you i believe in destiny in star wars to a certain extent i think i'm, yeah. I'm somewhere in the middle which is like a weird thing i'm like the bend you believe in density this. Yeah, you are my density. Back to the future. <laughs> Milk, chocolate. So back to, I don't know why I have this question, but when you think of dreams in Star Wars, what character do you think of? Anakin. That's I think of Ezra. Sense. Yeah, I love Ezra. Ezra's dream is probably one of my favorite examples of uh, Jedi uh, prophecy or Jedi, you know, seeing the future. Because yeah. I think that's like the purest kind of way to show it. You know, Anakin sees his wife suffering, but it's kind of murky and he doesn't exactly understand it. Uh, but Ezra see these, sees these events and then does not understand how those events are reached and thinks he, he comes to those conclusions on his own. He comes to the conclusion that there's only one way for these things to happen and then they happen. Um, and I think that is kind of why I'm in the middle of the predestiny kind of thing, because you can see the end goal, but you can't see how you got there, the choices you made or anything like that. Fanakin saw his death right before episode six. If he's Darth Vader and he's sitting down in his little, his little goldfish bowl uh, with his <laughs> helmet off, you know, cross-legged, 
dreaming of things, and he sees himself die at the hands of Luke Skywalker, which actually I think that happens in the comics, funny enough, now that I'm mentioning that. But yeah, that sounds familiar. He sees that end result, but he doesn't see how he got there. And so he's predestined to die at that point. But what he does before that, how he dies, is completely his choice. Because as Darth Vader, he might think when he sees himself die, oh, Luke kills me in a duel. And I have to prevent that. And again, that's kind of what happens in the comics, I believe. Um, he sees he sees Luke kill him. And then I think he gets like scared that Luke falls to the dark side because Luke kills him. And he doesn't understand that it's actually Luke who saves him and that he doesn't mm. die at the hands of Luke. He dies. He dies because of Luke, but, but only because Luke is the one who inspired him to kind of return to the light. And yeah. so again, we're I think we're somewhere in the middle where you can make the choices that lead to the thing you saw. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that, that plays into predestination of free will and kind of, like I said, find yourself in, in, a, in a bit of a gray area there. But that's kind of why I don't think gray the Jedi. Prophecy... No, 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 no gray Jedi. And no don't even Jedi. get me started on that. That's a, that's no, no, a no. topic for another, another video day. because I'll go on and on about gray Jedi. Um, bad and not, not a thing. Do you have anything more on hero's journey or heroine's, heroine's journey before our next little segue here? I mean, this the next the next segment here will involve all that, anyways. And we can always we can start yeah. So we can always just yeah. And wanted to get into your boy King Arthur, King Arthur. All right, good. And and other mythological influences. Other mythologies, other things. So the the show the the floor is yours with King Arthur. Oh, you just want me to talk about King Arthur? Well, okay. Of course. So, like I said earlier. You know, we have Star Wars and we have all of these. We have Buddhist, Taoist, Stoic uh, influences. We have World War II movies that George Lucas grew up watching. We have sci-fi serials like Flash Gordon. Star Wars was supposed to be a Flash Gordon movie before he couldn't get the rights to it. And he started writing Star Wars. We have the fact that so much of the first Star Wars movie seems to lend itself to Dune from the fact that it takes place mostly on a desert planet to the fact that there's a thing called Spice. <laughs> like George literally just ripped off Dune and was like, I'm just going to make Dune because <laughs> no one's ever going to make Dune. So I'll just make Dune. And he made Star <laughs> Wars and it's literally just Dune. Samurai movies. Again, I tell you, cowboy movies and samurai movies are hand in hand. Um, World War II movies, like I said, that he grew up watching. Sci-fi serials. There's, uh, Wizard of Oz. You know, yeah. <laughs> Wizard of Oz for crying out loud, is the same kind of thing. That's a hero's journey. I think actually that falls closer to the heroine's journey. Reading in the book, uh, she talks a lot about like Alice in Wonderland is a heroine's journey. Uh, there's a couple of other things she talks about as our heroine's journeys, but it's it's cool to kind of recontextualize those things. But anyway, um, one of those influences has to be King Arthur and, and just the classic knight's tale. In the 60s, the once and future king was a novel that was released that kind of retold the Arthurian mythos for a new generation. There always seems to be like a reinvention of the Arthurian mythos every like like 50 or 60 years. Uh, all of a sudden, he just like kind of pops up in the, in the pop culture again, and everybody talks about him. And it's like, whoa. <laughs> um, I think The Winter King is like the most recent set of novels that came out, and they recently just got adapted to like an MGM Plus show that I kind of want to check out. But MGM it's like totally Plus. different. MGM that's a, Plus, that's a that's thing. A thing. That's a thing. What? You know that? 
I th you know, it used to be like Encore or like Stars or like Epics. I think it might have been Epics. I forget. Uh, it's one of those okay. channels like rebranded as MGM Plus. But anyway, they're doing the Winter King, which is the most recent novels that are kind of like adapting the Arthurian mythos. But back in the 60s, the ones in Future King came out heavily influenced, heavily influential on King Arthur. Um, you ever see The Sword in the Stone, the Disney movie? I have, yeah. That's an adaptation of The Once in Future King. Most yeah. of that, the stuff in that sh in that movie, like Merlin experiencing time backwards, and like um, <laughs> Arthur being called Wart uh, when he's when he's like a farmhand, and like being turned into animals and stuff like that. None of that happens in the myths. That is all an invention <laughs> of the Once and Future King oh, novel wow. series. Disappointing. Um, and the Sword and the Stone is an adaptation of the first novel, the Once and Future King, in that series. Um, Something else that influenced uh, that was influenced by the Once and Future King was the play Camelot, which is adapted into the movie Camelot. Um, and I, I will get into that in a second, but we'll go we'll get back to Camelot in a bit. Uh, but there was a big resurgence in popularity of King Arthur in the 1960s. And by 77, you could clearly tell that George had read Once and Future King at some point or had had tapped into the zeitgeist that was King Arthur. Because on a very broad basis, uh, Luke Skywalker's arc is very Arthurian. You have, you know, the farm boy who never knew his parents, who kind of idolized his dad, although he doesn't know who he was, uh, being guided by this mystical hermit wizard. Uh, he gives him this magical sword that, he, you know, is his birthright, right? He, he's, he's destined to get this sword. Um, it's, it's the lightsaber. At some point, you know, at, on his trials, he loses the sword in a fight and he kind of it, it breaks and he kind of feels like he's lost all. And again, that's exactly what happens in Empire Strikes Back. Um, oh, fun, fun thing, because uh, I'm thinking about the, the I am your father twist. Uh, King Arthur is actually a product of a forbidden relationship. Uh, that's a little iffy. So Merlin, his, his, <laughs> Arthur's name is Uther Pendragon. And there's like this conquering Welsh king who I'm, I forget his name. He's trying, he's, he's encroaching on Uther Pendragon's lands. And Uther like shows up to fight him and then sees his wife. And he's like, holy crap. He, he basically does like the Looney Tunes, like Auga. <laughs> like, like his eyes like bulge out of his head. And he's like, oh, <laughs> he goes absolutely nuts. And he goes to Merlin because Merlin at this time was his advisor. He goes to Merlin and he's like, hey, Merlin, I really like this lady and I want to have sex with her. And Merlin's like, I got you. So Merlin disguises Uther as this, uh, this rival. He just, so Uther looks like the guy he's, who's, whose wife he loves. Uh, and he sneaks oh, into I the castle. This. And they, you know they have sex and are that's how arthur is born so again it's like this it's almost like this forbidden romance i don't know if you really call it a romance but if forbidden relations forbidden stuff. uh spawn king arthur the same way forbidden relations spawn luke now of course uh arthur does have a sister morgan lefay um and who's a witch yeah who's a witch and arthur and morgan do get it get it on uh, so very uh, Luke and Leia reminiscent. Kind of. It's it's God. There's yeah. so much weird shit in mythology. 
Um, hey, there's weird stuff in Star Wars too, but not not quite as weird. So anyway, uh, I believe this sword the sword is lost in a fight with Lancelot, and that's a whole thing. Uh, Arthur brings Lancelot into his court. He reforges Excalibur. He creates the Knights of the Round Table in Camelot, and he's like, "Whoa, I finally did it! I've become like the greatest knight ever, and I'm the king, and my wife loves me." And of course, his wife is having an affair with Lancelot. That's like the big thing in Arthurian mythology is that Lancelot and Guinevere, Arthur's wife, uh, have an affair behind his back. And at some point he finds out about it, but he doesn't want it. He doesn't want anybody to know about it. So anybody who even speaks about it, he like, like challenges to a duel or like kind of like takes them to, to court because like the whole idea was like, Arthur is the inventor of like uh, due process, basically. Like he's the one who invented like the court system, and and all these knights are like, wait, we can't just kill people who like insult us anymore. He's like, no, we have to take them to court, and it's a trial by peers, and it's all this stuff. You have to have evidence. Um, and anybody who says that Lancelot and Guinevere are having an affair, he's like, no, I, I hate this and it's stupid, and he like basically locks himself in his tower. He's, he's pissed off and doesn't want to talk to anybody. He grows very disillusioned with knights. He has to fight Lancelot at some point to regain his honor because it, the rumor becomes too widespread. Um, and that's kind of when he relinquishes knighthood. And he's like, forget this. Knighthood sucks. And I hate it. And he kind of he, he has uh, Galahad. No, Percival. Sorry. He has Percival, who is like his right, one of his like up and coming knights, uh, toss the sword in the ocean. And he's like, forget it get Excalibur out of here, get my, my legacy means nothing. I hate everything. Tossing a sword, uh, eh? Tossing a sword. Yes. Where am I getting, uh, where am I going with this? I don't know. Who, who knows? Uh, anyway, <laughs> remember how I said that uh, Arthur and Arthur and Morgan got it on at some point? Uh, well, Arthur has a son nephew named Mordred, uh, an evil nephew who kind of shows up and is like, I'm going to mess everything up for you. I'm going to I'm going to destroy Camelot. I'm going to march on Camelot with my armies and there's nothing you can do about it because you're a withered old man who is not heroic anymore and I hate you. And Luke, sorry, Arthur, basically <laughs> uh has to get back into the knight game and and say like no, forget this. I I am a knight. I'm a hero. I created Camelot. I created all this great stuff. People remember me fondly and love me. And I'm going to have to face this with Banks. So he, he gets Excalibur from the Lady in the Lake. He marches to the Battle of Camlan. And fighting his evil nephew, he kills his evil nephew and he dies. And he is, because these are Christian tales, these are actually Christian and pagan tales mixed together. So it's, it, it's, it's infinitely fascinating, the kind of like weird stuff that you find like the green knight who's like this big green guy who who decapitates himself and like can just take his head off and he's like hey <laughs> it's great it's awesome hey. like i love i love that kind of stuff but anyway he kills mordred he dies in battle and the angels come and whisk him away to a magical island called avalon and that's the end of king arthur's tale and everybody you know kind of looks back at the time he existed as camelot and it was like this big beautiful thing and ooh um and of course, that's just Luke Skywalker's arc. <laughs> yeah. Like from start to finish. And again, all of these incredibly smart people who know Star Wars and know the hero's journey and know 
King Arthur so well. I know they do because they talk about it when they when they examine the original trilogy. Just refuse to see that in the sequel trilogy. Literally, Ryan Johnson, uh, in an interview, basically stated stated that his influence was King Arthur outright uh, in the Last Jedi, and it like it couldn't be any more clear to me at least. And if you watch Camelot, I, I'm going to make a video about this too. This is actually the second on my list after the heroine's journey thing. I'm going to make a video comparing The Last Jedi to Camelot and the movie Excalibur from the 1980s, 1981 or two, I think. I just recently watched it, so it's like fresh in my head. Um, but if you watch Camelot, the end of the film is uh, he's, re he's, he's reinvigorated. He's ready to fight. He's fighting Lancelot. The, the Camelot ends with him fighting Lancelot. Um, but Mordred is in the movie, too. It's just, it's it's mixed up a little bit. And most Arthurian myths aren't, you know, perfectly aligned with each other. But anyway, he's, he's getting ready to fight Lancelot. And in the grouping, he's like super depressed. He's staring off. He's like, I hate everything. I can't believe I have to do this. This sucks. I hate knights. Knights suck. Everything about this sucks. And all of a sudden, this kid comes up to him and he's like, wow, you're my favorite hero and I love you so much. And then King Arthur's like, you do? Oh my God. And he's like, yeah, you know, Camelot's awesome. And I love being a knight and I love knights because they're heroic and they save people. And, and, and I love you. You're great. And he's like, and he sings a song because it's a musical. Um, but he basically like anoints this kid. He's like, you're a knight now too, sir. I think his name is like Ed or something like that. And he's sure, like, Ed. Now, go, now go home and, and tell everybody that, that King Arthur is fighting for you and all this stuff. And that's how the movie ends. Um, and that just like, that just blew. That's Broom Boy. The skull, like off the back of my head. <laughs> like, like, I just like exploded. Cause exactly. That's Broom Boy. And I was like, holy shit. Like there's no way that Ryan Johnson didn't watch Camelot and Excalibur for that matter. In Excalibur, King Arthur discovers uh, the he outright discovers the Lancelot Guinevere um, affair, and he has a moment, literally, looking at them in bed, hovering over them, holding the sword, looking down, and we see the sword in the foreground, and them in the background, and he doesn't, and he and he stabs the he stabs like in the middle of them, so they're both like hugging each other, but he stabs like right between them. So they don't get impaled, but they wake up and they see Excalibur stabbed between them. And that's kind of like their wake up moment where Guinevere is like, I'm going to become a nun. Um, <laughs> that's a whole thing. That's a whole thing. But they slept I mean, through that. They just were like the sword got stabbed between them and they didn't wake up. Dude, they were busy getting it on in the woods. Uh, and so they, they were, were very really tired. tired. Very tired. I see. Lancelot, Lancelot's very tired. There's even a moment in there's a moment in Camelot where Lancelot, um, what's the word? What's the jousts? Where Lancelot jousts with uh, Sir something or other, Sir Leon, I think his name is, or something like that. Anyway, he jousts with this guy and he fucking he wrecks him, destroys him, he dies. And Lancelot's like, oh my god, I feel so bad. And he sits down, and he prays, and the guy comes back to life. And I'm like, Jesus, <laughs> that's Ray. Like that's that's that's. That's Ben and Ray. Like, I mean, there's so there's so much to it. Um, <laughs> there's so much. Like, I, I tell you right now, if you want to enjoy at least The Last Jedi, uh, and you don't already, watch Camelot, watch Excalibur, watch 
where these choices were made because the last Jedi was not just created in a vacuum. Ryan Johnson did not sit down and write this to be like, I hate Luke. Uh, he wrote it to specifically mirror mythology. And mythology, the hero's journey, is a coming-of-age story, right? I, I, I discussed that earlier. Yeah. Well, what happens to these heroes after they come of age? You know, most of them don't ride off into the sunset. If you've ever read King Arthur or Beowulf or there's a third, there's, there's other things. There's other things out there that I'm not thinking of right away, like Oedipus or Odysseus. You know, when Odysseus mm. goes on his trials in the Odyssey, he comes back and he does not have a good time. Um, once, once a hero gets older, there is a specific pattern we find where they do not really achieve everything they wanted to. And they kind of grow disillusioned or they kind of grow bored. Um, and there's like one last, like going out with a bang moment where they find their vigor and they're like, yes, like I'm back, here we go. And then they kind of go, go out in a blaze of glory. And that kind of inspires the next generation to fight in their stead. And I remember reading Beowulf. Christopher Nolan's Batman. Christopher Nolan's Batman. I don't know why. That's, that's in my head recently. So. Dude, that no, that's a perfect example. Look at what yeah. happens in Christopher Nolan's Batman. Bruce Wayne becomes a hermit, recluse, yeah. whose body is like completely broken by his exploits, and then dies and gets to live his perfect life in, in Italy with his hot girlfriend, while Robin, you know, has to take up gets the mantle. Inspired. Yeah. It's the exact same thing. And that's just a classic story. That's a classic thing. Um and and that was like a perfect perfect example that i didn't even think of like off the top of my head i have no that's... idea why it popped into my head we've no, been watching those brilliant. recently and that i thought of that i'm always thinking that's batman perfect. secretly so there you go um so we we've really got into uh mythology and star wars obviously here and matt could go on for days and days and days um but yeah you know i was i was gonna ask you about references people that are listening or watching could go check whether it's the books which are very dry and people probably don't want to read those, you know, the hero's journey, yeah. the heroine's journey. But if you want to probably. look up like the spark notes of them, that's cool. Uh, Do that. The films, films you just mentioned would be cool to check out. I need to check those out, a few of those out myself. Um, but I want to get into themes as well. And the first mm -hmm. one I wanted to start with was um, like redemption and hope. Because I think the major themes in Star Wars are like redemption, hope, family, found family, whatever. Like those are the ones I think of at least. Like I don't know if you want to dive into that next. redemption hope found family and i would say the other one is letting go of your fear of loss yeah that's a huge one and in fact i think actually in my opinion letting go which is usually the final trial in any of our heroes in star wars uh, they all have to let go of their fear of loss um and that not that they you know they don't always do that look at anakin but I would say that's the most important theme in Star Wars, I think, is dealing with death and being able to kind of let go of your fear of loss, let go of your grief. Uh, you can grieve. Grieving is healthy. The Jedi grieve. I want to make that abundantly clear. We see they that grieve, in the High yeah, Republic. Man. They grieve. For yeah. crying out loud, we see them grieve in the movies. Why do you think they burn Obi-Wan's body? If they didn't care about that kind of stuff, they'd toss his body in the trash like Danny DeVito. Uh, Qui-Gon. Did I say Obi-Wan? Yeah, yeah. I meant Qui-Gon. We don't see, we don't know what happens to Obi-Wan's body. Or we do. Obi-Wan's, we do. It, it does, he ascends because yeah. he becomes enlightened because he, he adheres to the non-attachment <laughs> principles of Buddhism and becomes enlightened. 
And that goes and that ties into Christian mythology because ghosts, you don't you don't become a ghost when you become enlightened in Buddhism, but you become a ghost when you become enlightened in Star Wars. And that mm. has to do with letting go. And I want to I, I really cannot hammer that home enough. Obi-Wan, Obi-Wan, Return of the Jedi, The Last Jedi, and the most recent example would be Ahsoka. Yeah. All of our heroes have to, you, you notice this more and more now. They revisit their old masters. They, they have to learn to let go of whatever grief or trauma they're holding on to. And that's how they ascend. That's how they become enlightened. Anakin fails that test. Um, and, and, and I see a lot of this. Um, attachment specifically well george lucas george lucas's version of attachment in star wars is more aligned with the buddhist principle of non-attachment than it is what people think attachment is which is simply just like love it is not love attachment and love are not synonymous with each other in star wars and i want to again i want to make that very clear i mean the texts the prequels make that very clear uh, even the Clone Wars and like all the novels set during that time period make that very clear. Like love and attachment are not the same thing. Jedi battle scars. Nobody talks about Jedi battle scars. Yeah. I want to talk about Jedi battle scars. It's I've a said very this new a book. million times already. I've said this a million times already. You're probably getting sick of hearing it, but I want to say it again. That book has the greatest definition of attachment I've ever heard in Star Wars, where Cal Kestis realizes that the difference between love and attachment is when you love somebody, you are willing to sacrifice yourself for them, but you also understand that they would do the same for you and you would, and you understand that you, you, you're okay with that. And again, that ties into letting go and the fear of loss, uh, attachment. You do not, you would not let them die for you. You know, you, you will do everything you can to prevent their death, which is Anakin. Anakin fails the test. The prequels are not about how the Jedi are wrong for their non-attachment. The prequels are about how the non-attachment principle is good. And if you don't follow the rules, you become an asshole and kill children. That is, that is what the prequels are about. Anakin is the poster child, the poster child for why the non-attachment principle is a good thing. Um, and I know that's like a really controversial thing to say, uh, because right now, like a very popular read of the prequels is that the Jedi are like bad and wrong and Luke Skywalker uh, changed the Jedi rules to be, you know, better because now in his Jedi, you know, you can get married and, and you, you can love and everybody loves each other. And it's like, no, 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 no. That was it. That was not right. <laughs> um, and I know a lot of people got mad when Luke, you know, reveals that he follows the non-attachment principles in Book of Boba Fett. Um, but my, you know, my statement to that is, you know, Dave Filoni wrote that episode. You cannot be surprised if Dave Filoni is following in what George Lucas specifically intended to write with the prequels. Now, you are allowed to read the prequels however you want. Yeah. Everybody's reading of Star Wars is valid in their own way. And I do not want to diminish that and say that my reading is more important or better or more correct than anyone else's. Um, but I do think George intended to write the prequels in a specific with a specific message in mind. And I do think Dave Filoni is following that when he continues Luke's Academy in that same vein. Um, and I, I just think, you, you know, you can't be surprised by that. Dave Filoni is going to follow what George Lucas did. Now, George Lucas and Dave Filoni do disagree on a number of things. But again, that could be a whole other video that I could go into on. <laughs> That'd be but, a good one. Yeah, because there, there's a lot. 
there's a lot. Uh, Dave Filoni is way more harsh on the Jedi than George Lucas is. Like very harsh on the Jedi. Um, not George Karen Travis Levers, but George is pretty chill on the Jedi. George he actually quite chill. he likes them. I would say the only two mistakes the Jedi ever make in the prequels, um, if you look at the if you look at it by just what George does, is they should not have let they let the war dehumanize them too much. Uh, they got too two wrapped up in, in the war in the Clone Wars, yeah, and they trained Anakin. They made the mis- the mistake. The on- only two things. <laughs> that is the They're only two things. It's a big major things. <laughs> but it is the those are the only two mistakes. People always couple the Jedi saying like, oh, they became too like arrogant or dogmatic or you know too detached from the galaxy. That's all Filoni. Filoni kind of expanded on that. Um, yeah. And drew those flaws out more with with the Clone Wars. And of course, that was under George's supervision. So we can't just say that George was completely separate from that. But I do think Dave Filoni and George have very different readings on the Jedi. Um, and that's, like I said, I could talk about examples and stuff like that forever. Um, but yeah. I do say, I will say. Letting go. <laughs> yeah. I will say I like Filoni's, if that is more so Filoni's thoughts on it. I like his his angle of that, how they kind of lost their way a bit. Makes um, it more interesting. I think the Jedi does. lost their way in the war, for sure. And if you read Inquisitor, Rise of the Red Blade, you'll learn a lot about Ooh, that. Yeah. That book that book was so brilliant on showing just how the Jedi lost their way uh, and in keeping with a more a more George Lucasian uh, interpretation of the prequels. Like it, it very much keeps in that whole, like they lost their way because of the war. They let the war mess with them too much kind of way. Um, but it doesn't rag on the Jedi dogma or the Jedi teachings. Um, it does, but you have to remember that it's told through the point of view of somebody who is inherently like anti Jedi. Like they, they're already, Mm -hmm. they already start with a negative mindset. And they're already not meeting the Jedi where they need to be met to to understand them. So you, you have to remember that when it rags on the Jedi from a lot of different points of view, or from that one point of view, I should say, it's the one point of view is a person who is going to eventually go on to murder children. So you have to remember that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You, that's have to, why, like, yeah, you have to remember I, that like Anakin is not... Anakin's point of view is not the correct one. He is the villain. He is the guy who ends up being the bad guy. And that's like, that's also to go to the sequel trilogy. People yes. always think like, let the past die is the, Absolutely. Uh, the theme of last Jedi and it, or the sequels, even if you want to go that far, but it's not because he's the bad guy. Kylo Ren's exactly. the bad guy. Exactly. And if you look at jo- and if you look at Luke Skywalker's critiques of the Jedi, what does he say? He says that Palpatine used the war to make them lose their way. And they trained Anakin, and he became Darth Vader. And again, yeah, those I are the that. two points that George Lucas, I think, um, messed up with. And and of course, the Last Jedi has absolutely nothing to do with how the Jedi stink, right, or are bad, or anything like that. The Last Jedi is a complete and total celebration of the Jedi. Luke Skywalker yeah. is wrong when he is a cynical old man. <laughs> he is wrong, and and Ray is the audience stand-in for all of our different points of view on the Jedi. And I think for me, I think the last Jedi sort of kind of critiques that very popular reading um, of the prequels that I talked about earlier that like the Jedi are like bad and the dogma stinks and all that jazz. (laughs) I think 
Luke becomes too attached to the dogma and he, he lets go in Return of the Jedi, um, obviously. His fear of loss for Leia, he lets go Spoiler. of that. He ascends to become the quintessential Jedi when he does let go. Uh, and then, of course, Anakin does the same in his in his image. Just like Luke says, I am a Jedi like my father before me. Anakin then kind of looks at that ideal and says, you're right, I am a Jedi. And so they kind of influence each other and they save each other. Um, but then Luke goes on to become attached to the Jedi religion. So much so that he is willing to kill his nephew to save it. Um, before he kind of realizes, you know, that he was, he had grown too attached to the Jedi religion. And so he tries to let go of it, but he actually, he actually, the entire time on Octo, he is totally attached to the Jedi, even though he hates them. It's kind of like this, like, it's, 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 it's like this trapped mentality. I mean, obviously Octo kind of represents limbo and Luke is kind of just like trapped in this world where he's attached to the Jedi religion, but he hates the Jedi religion. So damn it, you know, and then Yoda shows up, burns the tree and frees him and he lets go. And yeah. he ascends. And Octo goes from being Limbo to Avalon. And the Battle of Crate becomes the Battle of Camelin. And you know, there you go. Kylo There's Mordred. Full circle to the to the uh mythology parallels there. Um but so it seems like your favorite theme in Star Wars is like is letting go. Absolutely. And that letting uh you know, fear of uh, loss. Fear, fear of, of loss, loss dictate your actions. That's what attachment is, is letting fear of loss dictate your attachments or dictate your actions. Um, you know, the, the other, some of the other themes are obvious themes. I think the one Matt just kind of went into is, is uh, probably, you know, definitely of the Skywalker saga, at least one of the most important themes there is. Uh, the other one being redemption, which we can yep. briefly talk about. Um, anybody, anybody who seeks redemption can find it. Yeah, uh, that does not mean that everybody can be redeemed, and I think that is a that is a, a there's a stark difference between the two because I think when people talk about the Jedi being redeemers, uh, and then turn around and say like, yeah, well, the Jedi kill people all the time, <laughs> they don't give them a chance to be redeemed. But there is, even with like Palpatine, you have to be open to redemption. You have to want to change, and you have to want to become a better person. Palpatine doesn't want to become a better person. Palpatine wants mm. to continue being evil. You know, he he has absolutely no humanity in him whatsoever. So much so that one of my favorite details in The Rise of Skywalker that nobody talks about is how he just completely misinterprets Return of the Jedi. He just does not understand I, the concept of family. That. He doesn't understand the concept. Like, he thinks that, like, Luke only won because, like, Vader saved him. But he doesn't understand why Vader saved him. So, like, Ray is standing there, and Palpatine was like, oh, Luke, your master was saved by his father, but I'm the only family you have. He just does not get, he does not get why Anakin saved Luke. He just cannot comprehend redemption, being a good person, wanting to be a good person. He cannot fathom it. And yeah. I don't think people give Rise of Skywalker enough credit for introducing that idea. That, like, and that is a synthesis to the anti antithesis and um, I forget the first step. There's a three-step process in stories. Um, but it's like the, the story, the, the antithesis, and the synthesis of the... Oh, it's the thesis. What am I doing? What am I talking the, about? The most the, obvious one, yeah. The thesis, the antithesis, and the synthesis. 
Um, and that line makes, uh, makes The Rise of Skywalker and the sequel trilogy a synthesis to that overarching theme of Palpatine is kind of just like the devil and does not, and is just like an embodiment of evil and just cannot comprehend what family is. And family and the want to redeem yourself is the thing that, that pushes the light. And he just cannot, he cannot figure that out. He cannot wrap his head around that. And I think that's totally kind of random, but um, what Palpatine, my, my little th thing, or no, no. What I'm going to say is kind of oh. random, off based off of what you said, because it makes me think of it. It was something I really liked recently that you know Palpatine, you know, as smart as he is with all of his schemes, he he's dumb and doesn't realize like he's not. <laughs> He's not like a, he's not a good person at all. He doesn't have a, one good bone in his body or his no. clone shitty body. Yeah. Uh, but like in Thrawn in Rebels, as smart as he is, uh, when Ezra is sacrificing himself with the Purgle and getting that, getting the Chimera the hell out of there, yeah. Thrawn is like, hey, like if you do this, like you'll be gone too. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. Like that's the point. He doesn't get and it. That... Like he's so he's so selfish. Like he doesn't get that Ezra is being selfless. Exactly. Uh, so it's like selflessness is the most important thing. And that's why most of the time when we see characters ascend in Star Wars, it is because they have sacrificed themselves. Yeah. Obi-Wan, Luke, Leia, Ben Solo, they all sacrifice themselves. And they all and that is like the ultimate form. Selflessness in the in the ultimate form, letting go in the ultimate form. Kanan. <laughs> is another good example of somebody who is able to let go, who is able to kind of ascend. Now, not in the same way. He doesn't become a force ghost, I don't think. Um, because I'm part of that, I'm part of that group that thinks that only the people who are trained by Qui-Gon can become force ghosts. And I don't think Kanan was trained by Qui-Gon. I hope, I mean, you're, you, that's a good theory, but I don't, I hope that doesn't hold up. I, it would make sense if it did, but like, I, I wouldn't, I'd like, care either way but right now i just think it's like the line of li the lineage of you know kind of like qui-gon discovers this and then yoda goes through the trials in the clone wars which is a great episode by the way and yoda's trial in the clone wars perfectly mirrors ahsoka's trial in ahsoka and obi-wan's trial in obi-wan yeah uh, it's the same it's like you're, we're basically watching these characters be able to become force ghosts right before our eyes like reach enlightenment basically. Um, but Qui-Gon teaches Yoda, who then teaches Obi-Wan, who is then taught by Qui-Gon. And then, yeah. yeah. And then Yoda most likely taught Luke along the way. It's kind of implied. Uh, yeah. And then, of course, Luke teaches Leia. And we can assume either Leia or either Luke taught Ben, or I always like to think since Leia stuck around until Ben died, Leia kind of ushered him into the netherworld which is of the Force. Another beautiful, which is absolutely moment beautiful. in Rise of Skywalker. It's like once Ben Ben sacrifices himself to save Rey, and then both of them seeing all, both of them yeah. go with the Force. It's like Jay gets Jamie every time. She like brings that is, every time. It's, it's, seeing, it's, a, it's yeah. a beautiful moment. Beautiful moment, it, especially with so the, Star Wars. The background with Carrie and all that too, and it's like it, that too. It, that makes it real sad too, but. Yeah, um, yeah, it is so Star Wars. So I mean, but we don't see Ghost Ben Solo yet. So no, we haven't seen him yet. We heard him in, in the, the Lego Summer Special. I think he was, but 
Oh yeah, yeah. Good. Him and Leia, I think we're talking as ghosts or something. I don't know. That's great. I, can't I remember, like that. But, um, yeah. I mean, this has been quite the discussion. Obviously, we wish we could get to more. I don't know if um, I call it a discussion. I hogged. I hogged the mic. Well, that was the plan. I know that was the plan, I mean, but I, I always feel guilty when I just like ramble, stream of consciousness kind of thing. Hey, it happens. And I think we're usually goofy, and people probably prefer that. What I mean, we're still at our goofy moments, but usually. People like our games and our goofy stuff, uh, but this was a good contrast to show, like, to show our uh, our range of talking yeah. Star Wars. I guess I, I, I yeah. don't know. I feel like you guys will like this episode. I um, hope they do. I, maybe you I, learn I some things along the way. But um, yeah, I mean, we can get back into it another time. We can talk more, and talk there are more, more themes. Too. We can do like a whole themes episode. And oh yeah, um, we could go across like every Star Wars project and talk about maybe influences and themes and stuff with it. It's funny you bring up, like, I wanted to, to put this in at one point. Um, but, like, you talk about Westerns and and samurai movies and their influence on Star Wars, and that's basically what Star Wars is. But it's, like, it's they've made it so much more obvious now with Mandalorian. They've leaned, uh, they leaned Bukaboba, into the Ahsoka. Western samurai trappings so heavily. But they also leaned into the knight trappings. The, yeah. the like, uh, Celtic mythology pagan mythology stuff like that like ahsoka it's just like knights <laughs> it's all knights chalk loaded um, mythology yeah chalk loaded with with arthurian mythos and like knight uh lore which you know western the cowboy is like the american warrior the the samurai is the japanese warrior and like the knight is the european warrior like each I, like, I always like when you bring that up that's cool each group of people on earth has these sorts of romanticized warriors that were not at all like they are in the movies in real life <laughs> um, but somebody that that is romanticized and deified if you will uh just like the jedi right again and today the jedi are romanticized and deified but if you strip away the legend and you look at the deeds as luke says in the last jedi yeah um so it, it's and, it, and again that's like the oh, same what is thing. that line Gets me every time, like in a good way. Uh, to say the force belongs to, to a Jedi. The, yeah, to say if the light the light die, if to say if the Jedi die, the light die. It's vanity. It's vanity. Yeah, that's 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 gold. I love that. It is gold. That's such a beautiful line. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's brilliant. It's art. Um, but yeah, hope you enjoyed this episode. I know Matt did. He had a lot of fun. <laughs> this is his wheelhouse. I enjoyed it too. I I, I honestly do. Even though it's not like my thing I look for, I do enjoy listening to Matt talk about it. it is, so I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. I'm sure you guys did. Uh, be sure to like and subscribe this this video. Subscribe. Uh, I already said subscribe uh, for more content. Do but don't do it again click if it again. again. No, don't click it again. Yeah, don't don't unsubscribe. unsubscribe. <laughs> uh, if you're listening to this, Jamie usually does this wrap-up job, so I'm a little rusty. But if you're listening to this, we do have a YouTube page. We have a Patreon if you guys want bonus content and want to support the show if you're a fan that would be much appreciated of course absolutely um, and we will be we'll be back in the future to talk about more star wars go check out some of these things matt mentioned if you're interested and um we will see you on the holonet see you guys see ya.